0: Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. <laughs> I was really excited to start out my message that way tonight. But it's true. Um, tonight, what we're doing is that we, uh, we're continuing in a series Called The Birds and the Bees, which is a series that we're doing at Thrive on singleness, marriage, dating, relationships, and all that jazz. You know, basically God, guys, and girls. And one of the reasons that we're doing this is because it's really relevant to our lives as young adults. This is a season in life where many of us are trying to navigate and figure out what do we do with those sorts of topics. But then it's also important because it's something the Bible talks quite a bit about. And so if it's in the Bible, we want to preach it. So we're going to preach it. And we spent the first two weeks looking at singleness. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at marriage. Now, why marriage? Um, I'm asking that question because Thrive is almost entirely a singles ministry. Um, It's not that we don't welcome married couples, but we just, uh, you know, we're we're a ministry for 20-somethings, which means that, of course, we're mostly going to be single. Uh, So singles dominate. So why, you know, why am I up here talking about marriage Um, to a group of singles. And the reason that uh, we're doing that tonight is because, uh, you know, no one uh, who wants to be married, which I'm guessing is probably most everyone here, um, no one who wants to be married should get married unless you first caught the Bible's vision of what marriage is about. Uh, You don't want to get married unless you've caught the Bible's vision for what marriage is really about. So... We spent the first two weeks on singleness, the next several weeks we're going to spend looking at marriage, what it is, what it's for, why it's good, why it can be hard, and then after we've grasped the Bible's vision for marriage, we're going to end our series by then asking the all-important question, well, how on earth do you get there? (laughs) So that's the subject of dating, romance, uh, that kind of thing. So tonight, uh, we're going to look at the Bible's vision for marriage, and we're going to do that by going back to the very first marriage in human history. Which the Bible tells you about in Genesis chapter 2. So, uh, grab a Bible. You'll you'll, you'll definitely want a Bible tonight. Because you're going to want to just follow along as we're looking through this passage. So grab a Bible. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2. And by looking at the very first marriage in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to find out why God made marriage in the first place. And in fact, that's the title of this message tonight. Why God made marriage. So, Genesis chapter 2, because you guys have it on a phone or an actual print Bible, do they still make those? Uh, yes, they do. The Bible, I believe, is the best-selling book still. It has been for a long time. So, uh, chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> okay. Now, you know, this is fun. I know that we actually have some people here who are moving toward marriage. Um, I know we have some people here who are dating. Uh, So especially if that's you tonight, listen up because, hey, this uh, this is, is of great import to your lives. Okay, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So this passage explains why God made marriage, and in fact it gives four little reasons and one big reason. So what we're going to do is we're going to simply look at first the four little reasons, and then we're going to look at the big reason, and then we're going to look finally to conclude at why, knowing all of those reasons, especially that, that big one, why that's important. So four little reasons, number one, number two, one big reason, and then number three, why it matters. So, uh, first of all, let's just go back to our our, our initial question. Why did God make marriage? Um, Why is marriage even a thing? (laughs) Uh, You know, years ago, there was a group of kids, ages 5 to 10, who were asked for their opinions about love and marriage. And I just want to read you some of their responses. Uh, So, May, age 5, says, No one is sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. Uh, Mike, age 10, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. (laughs) I hope you guys haven't ever done this. Uh, John, age 9, love is like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. (laughs) Manuel, age 8, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. Uh, Kenny, age 7, It gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. And then finally, Floyd, age nine. Love is foolish, but I still might try it sometime. (laughs) So the reason I read those is that if if you talk to kids, and sometimes even if you're an adult, you can kind of think, wow, you know, this is, you know, who would have ever invented this? You know, who would have ever invented, you know, like, guys have cooties remember and girls are just gross and weird so like how why how could God ever have thought to bring together these two mortal enemies and to make them eternal roommates so 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 marriage is kind of an if you think about it it it, it almost seems a little bit unusual you know God must have been the one to dream this up so why did he that's the question Uh, in this passage we're we're, we're told about the first marriage there ever was and in this first marriage you have three parties you have uh, Adam who's the groom got Eve, who's the bride, and God officiates, God officiated the very first wedding, so verse 22 is where they walk down the aisle, verse 23, they, they kind of, in a sense, take their vows, and then in verse 24, uh, that's the verse I want to have us zoom in on, verse 24 is after the ceremony is over, off. Mic is off. hmm, isn't that better, oh, there it goes, So yeah, uh, look at verse 24. So the ceremony's over, now the narrator chimes in. And he's got this little comment. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now that right there is a description of marriage. A man and woman coming together as one. But notice that the verse begins with, for this reason. Or some translations just say, therefore. Therefore. So anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you always have to look back and ask what it's there for. And so in this case, we can do that. When you look back to the preceding verses, they point us to four reasons for why God made marriage. And then there's also the, the one big reason, too. So let, let's start by looking at the four little reasons. And I'm, I'm going to keep these intentionally brief because what we're going to actually do is we're going to come back to these for, uh, during later messages in our series. So the four little reasons. Number one companionship so look at verse 18 the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone now this is a crazy comment because God has just finished putting the final touches on Eden I mean this is the most beautiful place that has ever existed on the face of the earth and he's looked at everything he's made and he's just said wow this is so good but now for the first time God sees something that he says isn't good And it's loneliness god says loneliness is not good and that's what prompts him actually to make eve and notice that eve isn't just meant to be a band-aid for adam's loneliness she's meant to fit him and he's made to fit her you see this in what happens next so in verses 19 through 20 god takes adam on a trip to the zoo so you know if you kind of look at it, you know, kind of see that you know, Eden had a zoo and, and, and Adam gets brought there by God. And all of these animals, God has all these animals parade past Adam so that Adam can give them names. So, you know, just imagine you're Adam. Talk about a day to remember. You know, here's the wonder of seeing an elephant or a camel or a giraffe for the very first time. And, and Adam gets to give these creatures names. <laughs> but he's probably, you know, he's, he's probably looking at all these things and thinking, you know, what am I what am I going to call that thing with the big weird nose and the big hump and the big long neck and 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 you got to remember like this is God's creation here that Adam's beholding. you know, it just makes me think I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen the BBC Planet Earth documentaries. Anyone stick up a hand? Yeah, well, and there's a lot of spin-offs that are basically the same thing, but I mean, some of the most incredible nature documentaries you will ever see that showcase the glory and the beauty of God's creation. And I think this is probably a little bit like, like the, the sense of awe that Adam probably had as he's just seeing this amazing display case of God's creative glory. But then, as he's watching all of those animals, I bet he probably was thinking something like this. He was realizing, you know, look at all of these animals. They all have a mate, But, you know, not that I'm not into elephants or camels or giraffes, but I'm just not getting the sense here that any of these is really the right mate for me. None of them is like me. None of them fits me. And so at the end of the parade, the conclusion, verse 20, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So what does God do? He puts him to sleep. He makes Eve. He wakes him up. And You know what Adam basically says when he wakes up for the first time? He says, wow. Wow. (laughs) No sooner has he looked at Eve than he breaks out into poetry. Verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Or literally what he says there is, at last. That's how you can translate that. At last, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, at last I finally found one who fits me. At last, a companion, a friend. Now, now, remember that, in a sense, Adam is not alone. What's mind-blowing about this is that God was right there with him in the garden the whole time. And God is God. You know, if Adam had God, I mean, didn't he have it all? How can he need anything if God is right there with him? And yet, the reality is, is that our God is relational. And what we see here is that even if you're the most happy, you know, satisfied bachelor till the rapture single... And maybe you're even like one of those singles who's just like all gung-ho to go to the mission field. This chapter teaches that you still need people. You still need to be rooted in community because whether you're single or whether you're married, we are not meant to be alone. And now marriage is one of the ways that God can address that. And by the way, I'm being really careful and intentional when I say it's one of the ways. Because marriage is not the only way... Um, for our loneliness needs to be dealt with. God has designed His family, the body of Christ, the church, to be the place where both singles and marrieds find community with other Christians. What that means is that if you're in a relationship here tonight, or you're thinking about getting into one, beware of pulling away from community. Have you guys ever heard of the three-month syndrome? Where you, you know maybe you've like seen this in other friends, where like you see like a friend of yours who begins dating someone. And then it's just like they disappear and you don't see them for the next three months. Because they're only spending time with that other person. Let me just tell you, that is a dangerous thing. Because if there's not community around you that's speaking into that relationship, then a lot of times there are going to be red flags that you might miss. So so it's not good for us to be alone, whether you're single, whether you're dating, whether you're married. All of us need to be rooted in community. Marriage just happens to be a really intense form of Christian community. In fact, you might even say it's the original Christian community. And so one reason that God gave us marriage is for companionship, number one. Number two, mission, mission. So in chapter one, we didn't read chapter one, but You might know the story that God makes man and woman, and then he gives them a command. He tells them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's verse 28. Now notice that God gives them these instructions together, uh, that both the man and the woman um, are, are, are a part of that instruction. And notice also that both the man and the woman are necessary for them to obey the command. Now, why do I say that? Well, one of the commands is to have kids. He says, be fruitful, increase in number. You know, Adam can't do that on his own. Then you've got chapter two. So chapter two, after God makes Eden, but before Eve is around, he has Adam work the garden and take care of it. That's verse 15. And then a few verses later, God makes Eve as a helper for Adam. Now, helper, by the way, it's a little bit of a I don't know if you, maybe deceiving is the wrong word, but usually in English, when we think of helper, we just automatically think of someone who's inferior. But just note that in the Old Testament, the word used here for helper is most often used of God, which tells us that by no means is Eve the inferior party. In any case, what all that means is that Adam and Eve had a common mission, they had a common mission. And that should be true of every marriage. Every marriage exists not for the sake of the couple alone, but so that through that couple, God might accomplish his work in the world. Uh, One of the things that I remember noticing about certain older Christian couples is that they were kind of what you'd call one plus one equals three marriages. You know, one plus one equals two. You know, two people get married, you've got two people. But what I mean by a one plus one equals three marriage is that two people came together And had a passion to use their relationship in order to see the kingdom of God advance. And so there actually was one plus one equals three. There was more that they were able to do together than they were able to do apart. And by the way, that's a really good question to ask yourself if you're kind of discerning whether you should remain single or whether you should move toward marriage. You know, is this person that I'm interested in someone that I Can have a common mission with? Are our lives living for the same purpose? Are we going in the same direction? Is this a one plus one equals three relationship? Let me just give you one example of that, which I find a really interesting example because uh, in this particular example, the the husband and wife were only married for a very short time. So, sometime back in kind of the late 1940s, there was a young man and a young woman who were both students at Wheaton College. Wheaton College is is a Christian university uh, near Chicago. So this young man and young woman, both students at Wheaton College, both have a heart to serve the Lord and particularly to do that in missions, and they meet each other, and they go on one date. That was it. But that one date and kind of their subsequent friendship um, was so significant that they just kind of knew that, okay, if I'm ever going to marry someone, I think it's going to be this person. Time went on, and and just because they both felt a strong sense of God's calling, uh, they believed that the best thing that they could do was to, to say, You know, I've got to seek what God is leading me to first, and I believe that if it's his will for us to be married, then he'll make that plain. And so for about five years, that's what they did. Eventually, um, this young man and this young woman were both called to the same place on the mission field, and they got married. Two years, I think it was two years later, um, the husband was with a group of other men and were, were trying to take the good news about Jesus, to a tribe in, the, in South America, in the South American jungle, that was known for being one of the most violent tribes in that whole region. And shortly after they made contact with this tribe, um, for, for various reasons, a number of the tribesmen came out and speared them all to death. So think about this. I, you know, after years and years of, of this young man and this young woman faithfully trying to follow God's will, And and putting aside marriage for the sake of the kingdom, at last, circumstances come together. They're they're finally able to fulfill this deep desire to be married to one another. And then within two years, he's dead. Now, some of you might already know who I'm talking about. This is the famous love story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Um, Jim Elliot um, and four other um, men about his age were all martyred in the 1950s, taking the gospel to uh, one of the tribes of Ecuador. The reason I bring up this marriage as an example of a one plus one equals three marriage is that after Jim died, his wife, Elizabeth, not only did she with the other widows move back into that community where they were able to lead that whole tribe to Christ, including the very men who murdered their husbands, but Elizabeth went on to write Jim's story. In a number of different books, um, one, of his, uh, one, of, one of those books is his biography called Shadow of the Almighty, one of the best books I've, I've read, I highly recommend it. And because of those writings about her late husband, um, Jim Elliott, in in his story, has gone on to inspire probably more young men in the last 50 years to go into overseas missions than almost any single uh, person. So, kind of a unique story, but even even that story is an example of a one plus one equals three marriage. And sometimes we don't understand how God is, is going to use two people. You know, they probably had no idea how God wanted to use them. But the reality is, there's nothing, there are a few things more exciting than getting to, to run alongside another human being <laughs> that has the same heart that you do to see the kingdom of God grow. So, reason number one: companionship. Reason number two, mission. You guys with me so far? Okay. Number three. Gender meshing. Gender meshing. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, um, fun fact, fun fact, uh, guys and girls are not the same. (laughs) (laughs) Guys and girls are not the same. Well, it's true. It's true that that is, in some corners of our culture, uh, not a particularly popular truth. I, I, you know, actually <laughs> heard a little anecdote about someone who was a, a left-leaning writer um, and then became a parent and realized that, oh my goodness, you know, despite kind of my assumptions that there really is no such thing as gender, I'm watching my boys grow up and it sure seems like there's something pretty boyish about them. And she went on to coin a pretty memorable phrase and she said about gender, there's a there there. <laughs> so anyway, guys and girls are different and this is actually plays a huge role in why God made marriage. So, what exactly is happening here when Adam and Eve get married? Well, notice in Adam's little love poem in verse 23, that he says of his wife, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And of course, what he's referring to here is God literally making Eve by taking out one of Adam's ribs. So, when Adam and Eve come together in marriage, what actually is happening here is a reunion. It's a reunion of opposites, the joining together of two similar but different persons into one organic whole. That's why in verse 18, Eve is called a helper suitable for him. Now, suitable for him literally means like opposite him. Like opposite him. And that's what men and women are. They're like each other, and yet we're also opposites of each other in a sense. It's like a perfect jigsaw where they're, they're actually meant to fit together. And they're meant to go together because when they go together, at least two things can happen. Um, so number one is that the genders can round each other out. Um, you know, I, there, there are a lot of different gender stereotypes and they're stereotypes, which means that they're, they're, they're not universally true in all cases. Uh, but, you know, there are many men, for example, who would admit that I, you know, sometimes I find it really tough to get uh, in tune with my emotions. That's maybe a sort of a masculine stereotype. Well, maybe the opposite stereotype about women is that well, sometimes women are maybe too in touch with their emotions. Um, one of the things that marriage does is it takes the genders and it meshes them together, so that that way a husband and a wife can be stronger together with their gender difference than apart. One of my very favorite analogies of marriage. Um, is actually connected to this, and and, and actually connected to the the other reason as well, um, which is is the reason not just of seeing your strengths come together, but of seeing sanctification come together in a marriage. Because when you have, uh, you know, two very different people, two very different genders that mesh together, that allows you, first of all, to get in touch with your gender difference. Because if you are a guy, let's say, there are going to be things that, as a guy, you're called to do in your marriage. Um, We're not going to talk about this very much tonight, but if you go, for example, to Ephesians chapter 5, that's a chapter all about marriage and how marriage works. And you'll notice that husbands and wives aren't given the same set of instructions. There's certain things that God calls husbands to. There's certain things that he calls wives to. Those two things are similar, but not the same. And so First of all, marriage is going to help you get in touch with your gender difference. That'll sanctify you. But then it's also going to help you um, sanctify the other person and help them get in touch with their gender difference. So so when the genders come together, it's one of the ways that you can get in touch with how God has made you and it's one of the ways that you can help your spouse get in touch with how God has made them as either a man or a woman. Uh, One of my favorite analogies of marriage Is this? You know, if anyone has ever been into um, gem tumbling, marriage is a little bit like a gem tumbler. You know how this how this works, where you take a bunch of rocks and they're all kind of ugly looking and they've got a lot of rough edges to them. You put them into the gem tumbler, and then you add a special mineral compound that kind of helps them um, helps them um, I don't know what the the word is kind of round you know round themselves out. And then you just let the thing turn and turn and turn for, you know, like 48 hours or however long it is. Well, after a long, long time, you kind of open up the gem tumbler. You take out those rocks. And they're polished and beautiful and priceless priceless treasures. And this is a little bit like what happens in marriage. You get a couple of sinners, specifically two. <laughs> you, get, you get two sinners. And you put them both together with all of their differences, all of their gender differences. And then the Holy Spirit is kind of like that mineral compound that helps them... Um, you know, almost the lubricant that helps them fit together. And over time, you round out each other's rough edges. So that if you actually commit to marriage and don't do what our culture does and simply try to run for the escape hatch whenever things get tough, but if you allow marriage to be what the Bible displays it to be, a covenant rather than just a contract, In other words, if you choose to stay in the gem tumbler, marriage is going to make you and your spouse into a person of incredible Christ-like beauty and splendor. So marriage um, meshes the genders together, reason number three. And then number four, there's one last reason. Um, Verse 24, uh, which is sort of our key verse that we were looking at for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So one flesh... You know, this is speaking of the deep personal union that happens in a marriage. And this includes, but is not limited to, sexual union. God has made all of us to be sexual creatures. And one of the reasons we have marriage is to be the one place where sex is to be expressed. So, for example, uh, Paul gives this same reason for marriage, actually, in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. He's talking to a bunch of people who are kind of poo-pooing marriage. They're saying, oh, if you're really spiritual, then you'll stay single. But Paul corrects them. He says, since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What he's saying is that, hey, like, guys, I don't know if you got the memo, but like, we're sexual creatures. And that sometimes it's not very easy to control sexual temptation. And that marriage is meant to be the one place where that should be, where we can express sexual union within the confines of God's plan and God's will. So that's another reason that God has made marriage. So we've got four reasons so far. We've got companionship. We've got, what was the second one? Companionship. Uh, mission. Mm-hmm. The meshing of the genders and sex. Four reasons. And then um, we've got one final reason to look at tonight. And this is the reason that I want to I actually suggest to you is, is the big reason for why God made marriage. So what's the big reason? Well, go back to our key verse. So we've been looking at this key verse, Genesis 2.24. And so far, what I've really been doing tonight, I've just been looking at this key verse and kind of offering some commentary on it. But did you know that there's actually another place where God himself offers commentary on this little verse? If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, in fact, go to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5 verses 31 through 32, God through the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2:24, and then he explains it. "For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What this passage has just done for you is it's given us the ultimate purpose of marriage. The ultimate purpose of marriage, here it is, it's to know God and to show God. To know God and to show God. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you remember way back at that very first wedding? That was, you know, that was real, (laughs) but did you know that that was actually about something else? It was about Christ and the church. I one time heard a really helpful little explanation of this by a pastor named John Piper. And he said that, you know, it's not as though God was kind of sitting around thinking about how he's going to make the world. And He thought, you know, I really like the idea of this whole marriage thing. Like this idea of like a man and a woman coming together in this, in this special union. You know, I really like that idea. I think what I'm going to do is because I like this idea so much, I'm going to take the relationship between Christ and the church and I'm going to model it off of marriage. So when everyone looks at Christ and the church, they're going to think, oh, romance. John Piper's point was, no, 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 no. It's the complete other way around. God from all eternity is a God who has created us, who has rescued us, who has saved us to be in relationship and fellowship with him. Scripture is the story of God Sending out his spirit to get a bride for his son. The relationship between Christ and the church, that's the the thread that you can trace all through the Bible. And John Piper's point was that God, because he loved that, said, I'm going to give them a picture of what that looks like. And that thing is called marriage. Marriage is always meant to be a signpost that points beyond itself to the true marriage between Jesus and his bride. Now, how does that, you know, how does that actually work? <laughs> well, let me, let me just give you one example of what it looks like to know God and show God in a marriage. Um, in his book, Prodigal God, there's a little illustration that Tim Keller uses from a foreign film uh, called Three Seasons. And in this film, it's a, it's a story uh, about uh, this, this, this young boy and the, this, this young man and this young woman who, I think it's in, set in Thailand, um, The the young man character is a a young man named High. He's a, a poor bicycle rickshaw driver. And the young woman is a woman named Lon, and she's a beautiful prostitute. And High deeply loves Lon, but he's too poor to afford her. Lon, on the other hand, longs to live in the beautiful hotels where she works as a prostitute, but where she never will spend the night. And she hopes that prostitution will be her ticket out of her destitute life, that she can make enough money to escape it. But all it does instead is it enslaves her. One day, Hai enters a bike race, and he wins. And he decides to use the money to bring Lon back to the hotel. And when he gets to the hotel room, to everyone's amazement, he simply tells Lon that all he wants to do is to watch her fall asleep. He doesn't use his wealth to try to sleep with her but so that she can have one night in the normal world, which was her deepest, most desperate longing. And at first, Lon is deeply distrustful, and she suspects that somehow he's trying to use her. But as it becomes clearer and clearer that, Lon, that, that Hai is using his power to serve Lon rather than to use her, it begins to transform her, so that she eventually leaves the world of prostitution forever. And Keller's point in the book is that that is exactly what Jesus did for us. You know, Jesus is the one who had infinite power. He had infinite authority over us. And in Philippians 2, that Jesus it says that Jesus used that power, not so that he could use us or abuse us, but so that he could love us and set us free. Now, that's what Jesus did. And do you realize that in marriage, that's what you get to act out? Marriage is like a theater, and the husband and the wife are the actors. And so, every time your spouse hurts you or sins against you, and you offer them forgiveness, you're living out the gospel for the whole world to see. Every time you go above and beyond the call of duty to do something for your spouse that they may not deserve, you're living out the gospel. Now imagine if if you're the one on the receiving end of that, you know, imagine that you're the one who's betrayed your spouse and then your spouse forgives you. I can't think of a more profound and personal way to experience the gospel and the forgiveness and the love that Jesus has for us than in that kind of way. And now imagine that on the other hand, you're on the giving end of it. You know, imagine just the the kind of intimacy that you'll be able to understand the gospel with as, as you get to take on the role that Jesus took on with us, extending forgiveness even when it hurts. I just think of the story of Hosea here. So marriage is this incredible theater where we can know God and show God. Marriage is a signpost that points to the true marriage. And I just want to conclude tonight by really just riffing on that big reason. That ultimate reason for marriage, all the other ones are important, we're going to talk about them in the future, but if you don't understand this purpose of marriage, then there there are a couple of things that I'm going to suggest um, are going to happen. Number one, if you don't have this true purpose and meaning of marriage in a marriage, you're probably not going to have a healthy marriage. So for example, you know, how do you know, for example, I've got in my pocket here, I've got this highlighter. How do I know whether or not this is a good highlighter? You know, if I if I assume that this highlighter is meant to kind of be like, like a, you know, like a little toothpick, and I'm supposed to like pick food out of my teeth with it, or something, or if I assume that it's, you know, meant to be, I don't know, um, a little thing to put in my hair. You know, I don't know, like. I'm never going to really understand if it's a good highlighter or not unless I know what it's for. The way you tell if it's a good highlighter is does it highlight well because that's its purpose. If you don't understand the purpose of marriage, then you're already, you're already kind of setting yourself up to fail because there, you don't have the right blueprint. So having the true pattern leads to a healthy marriage. And then, number two, so number one, you know, the true pattern leads to a healthy marriage, but then there's a second thing. If you understand the big reason that God made marriage, then what that's going to do is it's specifically going to unlock for you the paradox of a healthy marriage. And the paradox of a healthy marriage comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I want to tell you tonight, (laughs) and we're going to talk about this more over the course of this series, marriage is not about you. It's not about you. Have you noticed that in all these reasons here tonight, um, one of the reasons that I have not included is that oh, you know, marriage is simply for your happiness. Now I'm not saying that marriage is not something that can bring deep, incredible, profound happiness. It's true. But if marriage only becomes about that, and if you put yourself in the center of it, if you, if, you know, if you're living out a me marriage. That marriage is not going it's, it's to thrive. It's going to fail. The secret is that marriage is not about you. And if you get this, if you get that marriage is a signpost to Christ and the church, that's going to unlock for you the paradox that it's better to give than to receive. I mean, just think about Jesus. G, do, do, do you realize that Jesus never takes? Jesus never takes. He only gives. Jesus is the giving God. And if Jesus is what marriage is is pointing to, then oh my goodness, you know, what does that mean for what our posture ought to look like? You know, if you're married, which no one here is married, but if you ever get married, oh my goodness, like every single day, what an opportunity to wake up and say, how can I help my spouse feel like they're the luckiest person in the world to be married to me? (laughs) And I'm not saying to do that by being some kind of pompous, arrogant fool, but by serving your spouse By loving your spouse, by forgiving your spouse in the way that Jesus would. That is the the, the recipe to what leads to a marriage that will thrive. So, marriage is a signpost. It's not just about kind of me, me, me. But instead we have this incredible opportunity to step into the theater of this very special relationship in order to know God and to show God to a world that needs to know him. Let me pray. Father, uh, just uh, thank you so much that we get to be in this series. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us um, to really get what you were going for when you invented this thing called marriage. I want to pray for people right now who are really wrestling themselves with just that question of whether marriage is something that you are... Um, putting before them, Um, and I even want to pray for those who um, are really not in that space, but Lord, I just pray that even um, for those who are not, that looking at the Bible's vision for what marriage is would just even bring um, new depth to our own relationship with you, the true marriage, so that whether we're single or whether we're married, um, that we would come to know you and to show you more deeply in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.